Um, today's scripture reading comes from Luke 24, 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you were holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all of the people. And how, their chief and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem us, Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, <coughs> he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. Coming through here. He is risen. All right. That never gets old, does it? My name is Gray. I am uh, the senior pastor here, and I'm excited to have you this morning. If this is your first time visiting, thank you for taking a step, coming into a new place, finding out where the bathrooms are, where the sanctuary is. Thanks for doing all that this morning. I'd love to meet you after the service if we haven't met yet. We're going to be looking today at this story that we've just read from Luke 24, a great story, one of the first stories after Jesus was raised from the dead. He meets several people, and he meets seemingly these random 
seemingly random two people on the road to Emmaus. And this story has become a classic story. And as we'll see, it's really a perfect short story. It's beautiful the way that Luke lays it out for us. But it gives us the good news of Jesus' resurrection and believing in that and having life in his name everlasting. So before we look at the story, let's go to the Lord and ask his help in prayer. Father, we are so grateful uh, to be here this morning, to be on this side of the resurrection. Thank you that you are the first fruits, that there is a coming harvest, that those who find life in your name will one day be raised from the dead as well. That you have defeated death, the last enemy to be destroyed. You have removed its sting. That in Christ you have been victorious. Thanks be to God. We give you the thanks and praise this morning. I ask that you would be with us as we look at your resurrection again and afresh. That you would burn our hearts within us. That you would make yourself known in the teaching and in the breaking of the bread. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few months ago, I was uh, traveling um, on a trip, and I was in a rural area. There was no cell phone coverage, and I had some work to do for the evening. So I did the work that I was needing to do, and then I didn't have anything else to do. So I, like I said, there was no cell phone coverage, so that took scrolling mindlessly off the table. Uh, there was no uh, access to Netflix or anything like that. I didn't know what to do. And so what did I do? I hit the road. I just got back into my truck, having nothing to do, and I drove around country roads. And it took me back, I grew up in Mississippi, it took me back to those days of just mindlessly just going through these country roads. That's what we do when we don't know what to do. We find our way back to the road. And the road is this huge theme in our literature, in our stories, in the whole Western story. It's foundational. Think about the Iliad and the Odyssey, these travel narratives that talk about these stories of travel that's deeply embedded in our culture. It's deep in our literature. Jack Kerouac's famous novel from the 1950s, On the Road. Cormac McCarthy, Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote The Road, a post-apocalyptic book about a father and a son on a road. William Faulkner, as I Lay Dying, one of his most famous books, was about a family road trip with a coffin. Uh, very morbid. It's not just in our books. It's in our music. We have road trip playlists. We have road trip songs. We've got Willie Nelson on the road again. I can't wait to get back on the road again. It's in our movies. Little Miss Sunshine, great movie ridiculous plot, right? It's, it's about a family, a zany family road trip that ends up in a girl's beauty pageant. Dumb and dumber. Slightly even more insane. A travel narrative about returning a suitcase to Aspen, Colorado. The road is everywhere. The road is part of our desired life. Now we have digital nomads a new term maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, where we can work from anywhere. If we have an online job, we are nomadic. We try to hit the road and live in other places and work from wherever we are. We have van life, bus life, RV life, a life on the road. The road is where we go. 
oftentimes when we don't know where else to go. The road (coughs) is a place of movement, of change, of transition. And, And in that place where we don't necessarily know what we're doing, we hit the road, we hope that in moving and changing and transitioning, if there's some kind of movement, some kind of uprooting, that that will maybe give us a new direction. And so we don't know if it will or not, but we think maybe if we start moving, then we'll find ourselves or we'll find what we're looking for. The road is where we go when we don't know what to do. There are two people on the road in the passage that we read today. The road to Emmaus. (coughs) They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They've been in Jerusalem in the most exciting time in human history. They've been there during Holy Week, and now they hit the road not knowing what to do. Who are these people? Cleopas is the name of one of them. We don't know who the other one is. Some have speculated perhaps his wife. (coughs) Some have even said, this was even the early church interpretation, that Luke himself, who wrote this gospel, is writing himself into this story. And that's why he's not named. We don't know. We do know that they've been in Jerusalem during Holy Week. What did they see there? Did they see Jesus entering in on the donkey? Did they cry out with the crowds, Hosanna, save us, King? Were they in the upper room? We know from the Gospels that it wasn't just the disciples. There were others in the upper room. Perhaps these two disciples were there as Jesus broke bread. Were they there in the crowd as they shouted, crucify to Pontius Pilate, who was wavering on whether he was going to deliver over Jesus? (coughs) Did their hearts drop? When Pilate washed his hands of the situation and they watched as Jesus was led away, did they watch him with Mary, his mother, and the others as Jesus suffocated on the cross? Did they watch as he was stabbed, torn down from the cross, and put in the tomb? This was the one in whom they'd placed all their hope, and now they don't know what to do, so they hit the road back to Emmaus. Perhaps that's home. Perhaps it's just a waypoint, a stopping point on the way to something else. But they're not alone. They're met by Jesus that very day. Verse 13, that very day. That what day is that? That is Easter Sunday. They find this stranger on the road with them as they are We're told, discussing together. The word there is actually they're arguing or disputing. There's an intensity to this discussion as they're trying to figure out what all this means. And that very day, Jesus joins them and He asks them, what is going on with them? And as they are disputing, as they are still buzzing with ideas and arguments, they stop and reveal their sadness. I never noticed that, really, or dwelt much on it. In verse 17, it's beautiful. He said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. 
They stood still looking sad. It took that moment, that invitation to stillness for them to realize out of all this buzzing and disputing and all this lack of direction, what really is the case is that we are sad. When they stop, Jesus gently helps them discover their sadness. We are people who live on the road. We have the idea of the road. We have the pursuit of the road. We are constantly in transition, constantly wanting to know what is my purpose and direction in life. And when we are still, if we are still for just a few moments, that's often when we have to confront our deep sadness. And that's what Jesus gently does with them. He basically answers three questions that brings them out of their deep sadness. And the first question is this, what is your hope? What Jesus draws out of them is their misplaced hope. I love Jesus' invitation to them to unburden their distress. You see how he asks these questions in verse 18. The one, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? What's Jesus doing here? Why is he asking this question? Is he being coy? What's, what's going on here? It's a gentle invitation for them to tell him what is on their hearts. Like God in the Garden of Eden when he comes and he knows where Adam is. But he says to him, Adam, where are you? Knowing where he is, but inviting him to talk about his distress. So Jesus invites them. And what they share is that they are two people who have been living in the fever of a news cycle. Are you the only one in Israel? This is everywhere. What does this mean? A prophet, not just any prophet, mighty, they say, in deed and word. This one seemed like the real deal. And what does it mean that he's dead? And they unburden their distress. That's when they reveal their hope. Look at verse 21. But we had hoped. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. That's where the source of their sadness is. Their hope has been crushed. And there's a further complication because there are some people who are saying that He's still alive. Some of the women from our party say that they went to the tomb. They saw angels. The angels said that Jesus was alive we sent our own search party. It seemed to check out, but we didn't see Jesus. And you can tell that they are not in a place of belief yet. <coughs> they are skeptical about the news. And if you are skeptical this morning about the news of Jesus being raised from the dead, this should be a comfort to you. Because the Bible says that those who were closest to the resurrection... The people that trusted Jesus the most, who had spent the most time with Him, didn't at first believe that He had been raised from the dead. These are the people who believed that Jesus was a mighty prophet, mighty in word and deed. They had seen Jesus do miracles. They trusted that Jesus was mighty, but they still didn't believe in the resurrection. That's too much 
That's too far. The Bible is full of these stories of those who didn't believe at first, doubting Thomas, and on and on. These are not stories of gullible people believing gullible things. (coughs) The Scriptures report the truth that most people, when they heard about the resurrection, were skeptical. And certainly these two on the road are skeptical because they use the past tense. We had hoped. Their hope is not there anymore. Their hope had ended in death because death is the ultimate killer of hope. I want you to think about it. Think about whatever it is that you hope for, things that you hope for for yourself, things that you hope for for your family, things that you hope for for the United States, things that you hope for for the world. We could hope and believe that any one of those things would be so good, but there's always this punchline, but we're going to die. And those around us will. And so Jesus was this prophet, mighty in word and deed, but their heads are hanging low because no matter how mighty he was, their hope is in past tense because death has destroyed their hope. How would you fill in this sentence? I had hoped that. I had hoped that by now I would have more friends in adulthood. I had hoped to have a child or more children than I have. I had hoped that I wouldn't be single. I had hoped that I had made more money by now. I had hoped that I would have been more advanced, more respected that I would have my stuff together, that my life would have some direction. When we are still, we begin to see in our sadness that we have hopes that have not been met. What's the answer? Well, Jesus says you can't answer that question until you see some other things. You can't answer what is my hope without answering another question, without knowing what story you're a part of. Second question that Jesus uncovers with them is this, what is your story? <coughs> What's his response to them after they say this? Does he say, no, I'm, I'm here, I've been raised from the dead. It's me. Remember, their eyes have been shut. They don't see him. What does Jesus do? Verse 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, beginning with Moses and all the prophets? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's gentler than perhaps the ESV translation there. What Jesus says is this Oh, you lack so much understanding. You're slow to see, and the key word here is all that the Scriptures have spoken. They saw some. They saw that Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. They believed in the redemption of Israel. (coughs) But they didn't see all of it because they missed that part about Him suffering. And what Jesus does is beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he takes them through the story, highlighting how it has from the beginning talked about 
the suffering servant to redeem Israel. Beginning perhaps in Genesis 3, where the serpent crushes the heel of the one who was to come. <coughs> it was necessary for the, for the Christ to suffer. Jesus tells them the story. Don't you wish you could have been there just to fly on the wall, so to speak, to hear as he describes Moses and the prophets. That's all of the Old Testament, by the way, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. When you are sad, when in your stillness you recognize that you have hopes that have not been met, Jesus reminds us that the most helpful thing you can do is to remind yourself of the story that you're in. I was thinking about the end of the two towers from the Lord of the Rings, famous passage of Samwise the Brave, the companion of Frodo as they're going to destroy the ring and he has this beautiful section, so much stuff is going on to make them lose hope in their quest. It's the end of, the, of that part of the story. They've been captured by Faramir and <clears throat> they're going to away from the gates of Mordor where they had already made it to the place where they're supposed to destroy the ring. Frodo is injured. He's almost given up the ring to the ring wraiths. It's, there's all kinds of details going on. I'm nerding out too much. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. They're in a very dark place. And Sam says this great famous passage. It's, the, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness, must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer I know now. Folks in these stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Samwise gives them hope again by saying, we're in a story. And if this is a hero story, Mr. Frodo, then we have to act like heroes because that's what the story says. That's the story that we are in. Jesus does the same thing. He says, look, take your hopes and place them into the story. You've missed some things. You've missed the suffering servant. Jesus says, you had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. You don't know what the word redeem means. If it's absent of this idea of suffering, this was necessary that the Christ would suffer so that you could be redeemed. And so he tells them the story again. Friends, we cannot answer the question, what am I really hoping for, until we answer the previous question, what story am I in? Because if the story is one of a senseless beginning and, and uh, us meandering our way into meaning and survival of the fittest or whatever story we might otherwise believe, if that's the story, your hopes change. 
Then you might believe, well, maybe I should just be the fittest. Maybe I should be better than everyone else. It's a different trajectory. But if the story is that we live in a broken world, that God redeems himself by putting himself into the world, and this is the story of a suffering servant who dies on our behalf and then is raised from the dead, if this is a resurrection story, that means that the the killer of hope, death itself, no longer has power. It's not a story where we had hoped for something and then it ends in death. It goes to death, but then it ends in life. This is resurrection. This is Easter. The story of the resurrection changes the story. It destroys the destroyer of hope. Death itself. And if that is the story, then the hope changes as well. The third question that Jesus invites out of his two disciples on the road is this question, what is your satisfaction? Because all of us have different hopes for different things in this life. We might believe different things about the story that we are in, but when it comes to the one desire that we all share, it's this one, to be deeply satisfied. All of us want meaning, purpose, direction for our lives. We want eventually to get off the road. We enjoy the road. The road is fun. The road is, is energizing, questioning, the transitioning. But the human heart wants to arrive, not be in this place forever. They get to their first destination, which is Emmaus. Look with me at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's now toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They invite Jesus to stay with them. He declines at first. It's a polite thing to do. They insist. They bring him in. He's their guest. But suddenly in the next verse... He's their host. While they sit down at the table, they're not serving him. He's serving them the bread. And as soon as they taste it, their eyes are open. Jesus vanishes from their sight. And they are left with burning hearts from his teaching and full bellies from his meal. In other words, they are left deeply satisfied. This is what we want, isn't it? A burning heart and a full belly. Deep, intellectual, physical, directional, existential satisfaction is the desire for every heart to arrive at a place of the truth. And they can't contain themselves. Even though they've been traveling all day, these seven miles to Emmaus, the very hour they get up and they go back to Jerusalem. They hit the road again 
But now, it's not a road of sadness. It's a road of joyful mission. They have something to share. They're going to share the good news of the risen Christ with the disciples and add their voices to the women to say, He is risen indeed. It's a perfect parallel road story. It's in five acts. I can lay it out for you very simply. It's perfectly parallel. We have the road from Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Then they are blinded. They lose their sight when they come to Jesus. They can't see him. Jesus shares his teaching and his meal. Back to blindness. They receive their sight. Parallel to the second part. And then they go back on the road to Jerusalem. It's the same story that happened to the Apostle Paul. Where was the Apostle Paul converted? Where, was, where did he meet the risen Christ? It was on the road to Damascus. And he had a different mission in his life. His hope, his story, his great satisfaction in life was the persecution of the church, the destruction of those who believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. <coughs> but what happened? Jesus the risen Christ, met him on that road. What did he do? He blinded him, took away his sight, sent a messenger to give him the good news of the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead. He gave him back his sight. And then he sent him on mission. Paul's missionary journeys, Paul hits the road again, but this time not in sadness and derision of the church, but in support of the church. This is how Jesus meets people. He meets them on the road while they are doing what they are doing, while we are doing what we're doing, while we are searching, while we are transitioning, while we are reasoning, while we are questioning, while we are arguing, while we are wondering what is the truth. And He shows Himself to us. How does He do it? The, the means by which he shows himself have not changed from this passage. What did Jesus do to show himself? He opened up the scriptures. He told them the story. And their hearts burned within them. And then he sat them down at a table and he gave them bread and their eyes are opened. It's, it's frankly what we are doing today, what we do every single Sunday. We open up God's word and we meet God at his table. And that's where Jesus meets people still who are lost and wandering on the road. He still reveals Himself in the Word and at the table. He still gives burning hearts and full bellies to all those who would seek after Him. The risen Christ is the answer to all three questions. He is our hope. He is the, the hero of the story, and He is the source of deepest satisfaction. He meets people on the road when they have different hopes, when they have different desires, different satisfactions, different storyline that they're believing, and He confronts us, and He shows us Himself, not forcefully, but gently. He invites us to unburden our distress to Him and to follow Him. And then he puts us back on the road to mission. Once we are satisfied in him, then he sends us out to share the good news 
of what we have received. If I can encourage you to do one thing this Easter would be be still. Be still. All of us are on the road. We're trying to figure things out. We're trying to move from place to place. We're trying to find satisfaction. When we are still, that's when we have to confront our deepest sadness. Where does the sadness come from? It probably comes from hopes that haven't panned out. It probably comes from confusion about what part you play in whatever story you believe that you're in. It probably comes from a desire for satisfaction just out of reach that has been your heart's desire for a long time, but it just doesn't seem to happen. When we're still, we confront the sadness. What I hope and pray happens, though, after that is that we meet the risen Christ again or for the first time, that we return to this Christ who is the answer to these questions, who gently comes and says to us, why are you sad? What have you been hoping in? Have you been following the story that I laid out, this, the grand story of all redemption? Have you found deep satisfaction anywhere else? No, then return to me and find it in me, in my body broken, blood poured out. Find it here, a life in Christ is where we find it. And so we return to him and we ask him again for a burning heart that as we look at the scriptures, whether it's on a Sunday or it's during the week, that we would come with that prayer to say, as we open up this word, would you have my heart burn within me? Would you reveal yourself to me? As you come to the table every week, this, this thing that we do every single Sunday because this is our life, that our, our eyes would be opened, that we would stop living in blindness, the temporary blindness that, that we find for these couple on the road and, and for Paul himself. We also experience how have we been blind to the reality of the resurrection because if it's true, then it ought to set our hearts ablaze and it ought to fill our bellies with deep satisfaction. That is what's offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what's offered today and every time this word is open and this table is set. And I want to invite you to that table now to find your deepest satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray.